0: Welcome to the Consilience Podcast, my name is Shannon Beer, I am a health and confidence coach who chats to experts to help us improve our well-being so that we can get more out of life. In a previous episode I spoke about whether flexible dieting really exists and a question that I've been asked frequently is whether I can explain how comes flexible dieting and rigid dieting share variance? What does that mean to say there's shared variance between the two constructs? So, I want to talk about that a little bit and how we can move towards a healthy relationship with food because the reason that we endorse flexible dietary control in the first place is because we generally consider it to be a more adaptive and sustainable alternative to rigid approaches. And if it fits your macros is a very common approach that is typically considered synonymous with flexible dietary restraint. And this is where we you know, emphasize higher protein intakes and individualise macronutrient totals with the purpose of including a variety of foods and affording flexibility in the diet. And it is true that flexibility is important the question is whether if it fits your macros is actually flexible dietary restraint and whether flexible dietary restraint is actually flexible itself because this is where the shared variance issue comes in so back in 1991 there was a researcher who found that individuals who engaged in more regimented eating approaches, some more of an all or nothing kind of approach, they were more likely to overeat than individuals who endorsed a more flexible type of dietary restraint. So this is when the flexible control and the rigid control was conceptualized. And we have found that in some studies, flexible dietary restraint has been associated with lower levels of disordered eating and psychological distress, and higher levels of self-regulation and sustained weight loss. And yet these findings have not always been replicated. And recent research has reported positive relationships between flexible restraint and binge eating. So as an evidence-based practitioner, This is kind of concerning and prompts the question, is flexible restraint an adaptive form of eating or not? So let's get on to the issue of shared variance. The reality is that most individuals do not utilize purely flexible or purely rigid strategies. And several studies have observed that rigid and flexible control are usually positively correlated with each other partly because both require the exertion of cognitive restraint, right? They're two different forms of cognitive restraint. So we are still very much focused on what we're eating and very much focused on regulating our body weight. And dietary restraint, whether it's flexible or rigid, depends on psychological processes such as self-awareness and self-monitoring. And these can impose cognitive demands on the person engaging in these approaches so these two constructs are measured by the cognitive restraint scale and as i've mentioned they share a variance of up to 52 percent which is a very significant overlap and the important part is that the adaptive properties of flexible control are only apparent Once it's shared, variance with rigid control is removed. So this essentially means there's a lot of similarities between these two constructs. And research has not yet elucidated what those adaptive components of flexible control actually are. So if we take a look at the items of the flexible control scale a little more closely, there's 12 of them. So let me just read those out to you. Number one, when I have eaten my quota of calories, I'm usually good about not eating any more. Number two, I deliberately take small helpings as a means of weight control. Number three, while on a diet, if I eat food that is not allowed, I consciously eat less for a period of time to make up for it. Number four, I consciously hold back at meals in order not to gain weight. Number five, I pay a great deal of attention to changes in my figure or body build. Number six is a question of how conscious are you of what you're eating? Number seven is how likely are you to consciously eat less than you want? Number eight, if I eat a little bit more on one day, I make up for it the next day. Number nine, I pay attention to my figure, but I still enjoy a variety of foods. Number 10, I prefer light foods that are not fattening. Number 11, if I eat a little bit more during one meal, I make up for it at the next meal. And number 12 is a question, do you deliberately restrict your intake during meals even though you'd like to eat more? So it's actually quite interesting when you look at some of these items because you may have noticed that they don't always pertain to flexibility at all. So there are some issues here and some things that I've noticed. When I've eaten my quota of calories, I'm usually good about not eating anymore. So there seems to be a bit of um, judgment there. I deliberately take small helpings as a means of weight control. You can see it's all about weight control. There's no mention of health. There's no mention of I enjoy foods from time to time. There's even mentions of fattening foods, which we know don't exist. Of course, energy-dense foods exist, but energy-dense foods in isolation do not cause weight gain and you know can be incorporated in an overall healthy and balanced diet. So there are certainly some issues with this scale and yet this is the scale that we've been going off when we're talking about flexible dietary control and in fact item 9 I pay attention to my figure but I still enjoy a variety of foods was the only item on that scale that did not share substantial variance with rigid control and was positively associated with body appreciation and inversely with binge eating, food preoccupation, and BMI. So this highlights that yes, we can still pay attention to our bodies and how they look, but, Potentially this pertains to a healthy investment in an appearance that's motivational rather than self-evaluative in nature. So this could mean that whilst we care about maintaining an attractive appearance, we don't define ourselves by our appearance and we do not go to great lengths, we don't make great sacrifices in order to achieve it. And crucially, we still allow ourselves to enjoy a variety of different things foods. So this is indicative of what actually might be, you know, um, a cornerstone of a healthy relationship with food so that's something to bear in mind and again to come back to the point it's not uncommon for macro-based dieting to be a highly rigid dietary practice so much of the research in flexible control that has drawn positive outcomes has been done in populations with overweight or obesity which is clearly not the same as quote-unquote normal body weight resistance training populations there's a bit of a difference there and it's not uncommon for these approaches to be highly rigid so it's important to recognize that you know if we're focused on hitting very specific macronutrient targets for the purpose of controlling our body weight this can slip into a more negative relationship with food and body image which isn't going to be successful for long-term weight maintenance but more importantly is not going to be successful for our overall health which includes our well-being so research have explicitly stated that further research is needed to clarify the ideal level of flexibility and rigidity amongst dieting behaviours. So in light of this research, particularly the part where flexible control is only associated with positive outcomes Once its shared variance with rigid control is removed, it is prudent perhaps to reconsider how readily we promote this way of eating so if we are following you know recommendations and utilizing the operationalization of flexible control as proposed by this scale that i'm mentioning then we may be unintentionally promoting rigid control as well so that's what shared variance means that they actually just have a lot in common and we don't know what the real differences are we don't know what parts are helpful from looking at that research into dietary restraint But if we do want to get an idea of what's helpful, we can look at alternative approaches. So given that accruing evidence challenges the recommendations to engage in flexible dietary restraint, a number of researchers are now favouring intuitive eating as an adaptive approach to dietary management. And I don't think that intuitive eating is the be all and end all. I don't think that every client needs to do that. I think we we can look to this construct for more clues as to what we may consider to be a healthy relationship with food. And this is what we find. So intuitive eating is defined as eating based on our physiological hunger and satiety cues, rather than situational and emotional cues. And it actively encourages rejecting the diet mentality, and instead, cultivating a positive relationship with food and the body. And this is why it has been found to contribute uniquely to psychological well-being above and beyond the variants accounted for by disordered eating symptomatology. So what this means is that intuitive eating does not simply reflect the absence of disordered eating, right? So the benefits of intuitive eating are broader than simply not being disordered. There's more to it than that. So what this means is that a healthy relationship with food is not just about not having disordered eating right there are additional benefits and it's perhaps the promotion of principles such as respecting one's body and making food choices that honor one's health and finding satisfaction from our foods perhaps these are some of the things that account for those differences we find between intuitive eating and flexible control So importantly, intuitive eating is not simply another variety of restraint. And it is highly unlikely that promoting intuitive eating will promote rigid control. So it seems like a safer and more effective way of improving our relationship with food. And intuitive eatings have been associated with lower disordered eating and body dissatisfaction and higher body appreciation and mindfulness. So it is less likely to promote eating pathology and may even lessen it now the issue is that the vast majority of research on intuitive eating to date has been conducted in predominantly white female samples which of course limits the generalizability to other populations and a lot of the research is cross-sectional in nature, which means that we can't really draw conclusions regarding the direction of the relationship between intuitive eating and psychological adjustment. So it could be that psychological well-being promotes attention to and trust in our internal bodily signals, which facilitates intuitive eating rather than the other way around. And honestly, it's likely to be a bit of both. So in fact, the acceptance. Acceptance model of intuitive eating posits that body acceptance by others helps women to appreciate their bodies and resist adopting an observer's perspective. So this acceptance from others contributes to their eating intuitively so it's likely that in practice a truly healthy relationship with food will be facilitated by actively cultivating other adaptive psychological processes alongside our dietary changes because these mechanisms contribute to adaptive eating styles so all of this work goes hand in hand And it's also important to note that intuitive eating is not the only internally regulated eating style out there. So there are other concepts that we find in the literature, like appetite awareness, eating competence, mindful eating, and so on, which all refer to eating styles that are driven by internal hunger and satiety cues. So really the conclusions that i've been drawing from this research and you can you know take that for what it's worth as general guidelines for practice is that adaptive eating reflects more than simply the absence of disordered eating so we're talking about you know preoccupation with food binge eating dietary restriction So what we're looking for is an approach that is going to facilitate these more adaptive properties. So this will include an approach that promotes a non-dichotomous view of foods. So this is what I think where people do notice a benefit with if it fits your macros is it can be a way to learn that no foods need to be off limits but it's also not the only way that we can learn that but it is important that we are able to spontaneously enjoy our food without anxiety or guilt a helpful approach to nutrition will also facilitate accepting valuing and respecting one's body Emphasizing health over aesthetics, and we'll aim to enhance embodiment. So that is the awareness of our body and being responsive to those cues. So we're seeking to develop self-efficacy in using our signals of hunger and satiety when appropriate. And I will say this is the one you know, probably the most controversial factor of these entirely regulated eating styles is that not everyone can do that, and not everyone can solely rely on these cues but I do think developing an awareness and learning how to look out for them building our capacity to be aware of these cues and to um, trust that our body can regulate eating for itself and um, that's probably something that a lot of us can do is build our capacity rather than trying to aim for full reliance and um, we can build our capacity and another caveat is that you know we may not be able to reach that state Im- immediately it may very well be the case that we need a more structured approach to eating if we're really out of touch with these cues which can be a result of you know ignoring these cues and excessively dieting so again just that point that the internally regulated eating is something to strive towards it's not that we just jump straight into that and structure is a very important part of that too this is why it's really important to promote eating at regular intervals as well And we also want to learn how to differentiate between physiological hunger and psychological hunger cues and then in addition to that teach adaptive emotional regulation strategies such as acceptance and self-compassion. That's probably going to be an important part of improving our relationship with food is having other ways to manage our emotions in addition to food we also want to cultivate an internal sense of worth such as unconditional self-acceptance because this is going to be protective of becoming dependent on our appearance as a source of validation and then finally it's also really important to consider one's social environment and encourage social support And this would be an environment that doesn't endorse diet culture or fat talk. Um, Of course, we would aim to be resistant to that over time. But particularly when we're working on these things, it makes a massive difference to have people around us who are encouraging and supportive and that is crucial for the acceptance piece and is also a very important part of learning compassion as well and that of course will impact our eating behaviors. So hopefully that helped to answer the question what do we mean by shared variance? Essentially that there's a large overlap between the two constructs and we don't actually know what the adaptive components are. Yes flexibility is important, no macro tracking is not inherently bad, however there's a whole lot more to healthy relationship with food than simply the absence of disordered eating and some of these principles of appreciating your body finding the enjoyment rejecting the diet mentality are also very important parts of having a healthy relationship with food and ourselves so let me know if you have any more questions and i will answer those in future episodes Thank you so much for listening to the Consilience podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you know someone who also would benefit, then please do share this episode with them. And if you're looking for more support, check out my coaching, mentoring and educational offerings by looking at my website, which is linked in the show notes. Until next time.